Packages by Expedia. You were made to be rechargeable. We were made to package flights, hotels, and hammocks for less. Expedia. Made to travel. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. We have the news with me, Brittany, Clint, and Sam, as always. We're also joined by Chelsea Handler, the comedian and activist. You know, there's white privilege with somebody like me who just, you know, I thought I worked, I thought I pulled myself up by my, uh, by my bootstraps for a long time. I thought, oh, I came from nothing. I came from New Jersey. My father was a used car dealer. My mom was a nurse. That's, that's not nothing. That's a huge advantage already. And by Cornell Belcher, the incredible pollster, who help us think about the Alabama election in a different way. Certainly in the hyper-tribalization of our politics uh, today where you can be someone who's a creep, who's banned from the malls and trying to date teenagers and still win a majority of white women in Alabama. Before we jump in, though, I'll say this thing about what it means to have courage in this moment is that courage doesn't always show up as in the middle of the street or in sort of being defiant in tone. That courage sometimes is taking the first step. And there are a lot of people who I think are finding their courage in this moment. So I'd say to you, as we go into 2018, as we close out 2017, think about what the first step that you can take is. Think about like where you find your courage. Uh, For me, it was being a teacher that helped me think about what it meant to be courageous, what it meant to show up every day and do the work that was a grind every single day, but I knew that I was doing it for a larger purpose. And it was beautiful to see my students at the end learn how to add negative numbers and solve multi-step equations. But the building blocks to get there were really tiny. They were really small. It was teaching that when two things touch, it means multiplication. If it looks this way, it was helping them think about different ways to divide. It was not always beautiful, but it was the work in that on the days that it got hard, it took courage to like keep pushing through when I didn't always see the end. So Think about where you get your courage, find your courage, and let the courage fuel you. Let's go. And now the news with me, Brittany Packnett, a former member of the Ferguson Commission, appointed by President Obama to the Task Force on 21st Century Policing and an incredible leader in education. We have Samuel Sinyangwe, our resident data scientist, and Clint Smith III, III, our resident academic. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pacchetti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. What's going on, y'all? This is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Aye, aye, aye. This is DeRay at D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. So since we were last together, um, there was a big Democratic victory in Alabama, um, which was due in large part to Black turnout. Uh, which a lot of people have been lauding. Right. Very large part, as in almost all of it. Um, uh, And want to shout out um, all of the grassroots and grass tops organizers who made that happen uh, and engage black voters uh, and and got the campaign to engage black voters as well, especially a lot of uh, black women doing that work who often get erased. So want to make sure that they're shouted out. But certainly black turnout, black engagement was uh, critically important um, in that victory. I will say, though, that uh, someone treated me saying Doug Jones is invited to the cookout. If you're not familiar with that phrase, it is a non-black person that black people approve of. And I was like, hold your horses. Wait a second. We actually have to see 
what Doug Jones does for black people and for marginalized people before we invite people to the cookout and just be giving plates away all willy nilly. Uh, and some of his positions after the election have actually been quite worrisome, including saying that we should not impeach uh, Donald Trump and uh, actually move on from the allegations of sexual harassment against him. So lots to be seen still. Yeah, it is kind of wild when you think about, you know, what's going on in Alabama how black voters are essentially his entire voting block. And so it will be interesting to see how he acts in the Senate, uh, what his statements are, sort of how he uh, represents his coalition in, you know, in, in a real substantive way, uh, because what we've seen, you know, since the election, you know, is sort of troubling. And, and I hope that he will sort of realize who elected him into office and represent that constituency. Because when you look at what's happened at statewide races in Alabama, like black voters, despite being a huge proportion of the population, you know, it's, it's about 1.3 million uh, black voters in the state, despite being that huge block of the population, they haven't had statewide representation uh, in decades, uh, if if ever. And I think, you know, now is an opportunity, hopefully, for uh, Doug Jones to be that representation and to step up. Yeah, I think similar to Virginia, it was it was nice to not wake up, uh, you know, caught in the spiral of of despair, uh, for sure. But I think, as, as both of <laughs> y'all have pointed out, it is, I think it's super important to hold these folks accountable. I mean, both Doug Jones and Ralph Northam, uh, the governor-elect in Virginia and the senator-elect in Alabama have had like kind of questionable weeks in in that they are both wavering or have both seemed to waver uh, and have had to offer clarification on their positions. Like Northam was wavering a bit on his promise to expand Medicaid. Uh, you know, um, Doug Jones is out here, as you said, Britt, saying things seeming to to want to uh, go back against a lot of the things that he was the the things that his campaign was predicated on and the things that he was promising folks um, that that ultimately helped create his victory. Um, and I, I just don't understand this, these Repub- elected Democrats sort of doing this like wavering or, or attempting to become more centrist in an attempt to seemingly um, seem more fair or seem more balanced. And I think that that's generally a reflection of uh, misinterpretation of what this political moment is, is that that people are attempting to seem fair and balanced and bipartisan with a different party that is operating in a fundamentally different way and that is operating in a fundamentally unethical way, right? So trying to find the middle ground with a group of people who have taken sort of like extremism to a political extremism to a point that we have not recently been in, in, in sort of more contemporary political memory is is not the way to govern, right? So what you need to do is govern based on the promises that you made to your constituents and the people who voted for you and and to not waver. So Doug Jones has has done some some stuff recently that has boggled my mind. You know, thank God he won though, because we're more of a nightmare. But the first thing is that he said that we just need to move on from sexual assault as if it's like a, a moment and we shouldn't talk about these things. The second is yeah, he's he's sort of saying we don't need to impeach Trump and, and sort of wavering on that issue, which is wild to everybody. And then third is he's like, you know what, I might vote with the Republicans sometimes. It's like that is explicitly what you were elected not to do. So, you know, if anything, this is a reminder that the work that we do does not end with electing people into office. That That's the beginning of it. Holding them accountable when they're in office is a second part of the work and incredibly important as well. 
I think the other thing that this uh, highlighted was people's sort of response about the DNC is that I'm reminded that the DNC does fundraising and does sort of get out the vote stuff. So they are not setting the agenda for people, for candidates, certainly not setting the agenda for the party outside of the presidential election cycle. And, and this is a reminder that the people of Alabama literally elected him without the black vote. Like he is not a senator. And his platform and the way that he acts on issues will have to reflect that. And it's disappointing that he's already taken uh, these sort of odd positions before he's been sworn in. And I think this is a reflection of a lot of the cognitive dissonance that folks were talking about online after the election, right? Where people were saying, oh, black people have saved us. Black women have saved us. And that that rhetoric is not at all, one, that rhetoric is is not reflective um, of the fact that like black people are not necessarily voting to save anyone except ourselves you know what i mean like this that black people are often voting in terms of self-interest and and are not necessarily operating under this sort of like superhuman um you know as these sort of moral arbiters that are carrying the nations on their back right because i think that that in and of itself is a type of dehumanization but additionally i think you, if you are talking about and espousing how important in your uh, acceptance speech, in your subsequent media um, conversations, how important black voters are, and then you go in and begin to suggest that you are going to do work that is opposite of what the black voters that you are thinking put you in office to do, then I think that those are the moments when people are like, wait, is this party committed to me? Is this party working on my behalf? Or uh, is this a more transactional thing? And do we need to, again, think differently about um, how what we are demanding of those in, in elected office? So there's also an institutional component here where, you know, structurally you see that the majority of Black folks live in the South, about 55%. And because of the design of the Senate, where each state gets two senators uh, who are elected to statewide in statewide races, and because white folks essentially vote as a block, as Republicans— uh, you have a situation where, number one, it, there are almost no Democratic senators from the South. So you have the majority of Black folks living in the South, not one senator, uh, except Doug Jones and maybe a handful of others, who actually represent the party that Black folks uh, overwhelmingly vote for. Uh, and then even when they do get elected, we see what's happening now, where you know there is this effort to appeal to white voters, the small number of white voters who did vote for Doug Jones. Uh, and black folks essentially get erased uh, politically in the upper chamber of uh, of Congress um, with regard to the South. And I think that's something that that needs to be looked into. And, you know, I think a more equitable system of government wouldn't have uh, that type of structure where 55 percent of the black population essentially gets politically erased. The only other thing I'll add, especially to the point that you made, Clint, um, is that just like every other voter, Black people are voting in their self-interest, um, which most often means that we have to vote for the most progressive of the candidates, even if the candidate themselves are not actually that progressive. Um, but it also is a reminder that when marginalized people succeed, it actually does uh, benefit lots of other people and everyone else, um, which makes me want to remind people that if you were pleased with the results from Alabama or at least thankful that we avoided oblivion there, um, that you should be funding 
uh, um, black organizers, that you should be funding um, organizations that run black candidates, that help engage black communities who are not only doing the work to find success in elections, but also doing the work to hold uh, elected officials and appointed officials accountable thereafter. Um, so, you know, don't just thank black people and black women with 280 characters actually do the work of showing up and supporting those folks. So my piece of news is a vote by the Austin city council uh, on their police union contract. So last week, uh, DeRay and I were in Austin uh, where we joined with uh, local activists and organizers to push the city council to oppose a police union contract that they negotiated uh, that would have given the police an extra $80 million over five years uh, and included a number of provisions in that contract that make it much harder to hold officers accountable. Uh, things that, for example, prohibit the civilian oversight structure from having subpoena power or discipline power uh, that erase records of misconduct by reclassifying them from suspensions to written reprimands after you know, three, two or three years uh, and do a host of other things that uh, that impact police accountability. And for perhaps one of the first times uh, we've seen a city stand up and say that, you know, we're actually not going to agree to these types of uh, harmful provisions in, in the collective bargaining process. And they actually voted unanimously uh, to reject that contract and send it back to the negotiating table. Uh, so big win for uh, local activists there, the Austin Justice Coalition and others uh, that really got, you know, I think it was like 200 people to turn out uh, in opposition uh, during that council meeting. Many people testified. Uh, it was an incredible uh, display of activism and organizing. So like Sam already said, we went down to Austin, incredible city council meeting. They had people, uh, the organizers down there had organized it so effectively. There were people from 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. as citizens there to testify. Over 150 people testified. Incredible. And with, you know, we made the police union contract project a couple years ago. It's like people hadn't thought about police union contracts as a site of change. And, and we thought they were an important structural level because what we believe is that Justice and equity should be present in the structure, that it should not be that justice and equity are, are present when there's a benevolent leader. And this is an example of you saw like citizens push back and say, like, no, like this structurally has to be right. That the 180 day rule doesn't make sense that the community oversight board should actually have discipline and subpoena power. Right. Like the officers shouldn't get access to investigation material before. Uh, there's an interrogation. This is about a structural issue. And it was incredible that the entire Austin City Council uh, voted uh, voted against uh, approving this contract and sent it back to negotiations. We'd never seen anything like that happen before. And again, huge shout out to the Austin Justice Coalition. Uh, you know, this is a story that has been reported well in Austin uh, and is a real model for people all across the country. Sam, can you explain some of the nuances in the policing contract just so everybody understands? So 180 days after an incident happens, uh, if if no discipline has been imposed yet on the officer, then there can be no discipline imposed. So if the investigation takes longer than 180 days, if it takes more than 180 days for somebody to report uh, what had happened, uh, if the police chief doesn't find out what happened for after 180 days, then literally there there can be no accountability, regardless of whether uh, it was found that misconduct occurred. Um, and then the other uh, provisions were reducing, re so records of suspensions are automatically reduced to, to written reprimands after two to three years, uh, which seals them off from the public. 
Uh, and then the last piece was around civilian oversight. So it, it, it prevents the civilian oversight structure from having uh, subpoena power or discipline power uh, or the power to independently investigate complaints. So essentially, like you can't file, you can file the complaint, but they can't discipline the officer. So whether or not you file it, uh, even if it takes them longer than 180 days to actually resolve that investigation, then they can't discipline. First of all, congratulations to everyone in Austin. This is a huge step. Um, Sam, the portions of your uh, testimony that I saw were incredible per usual. Um, This is such an important example of what continued activism looks like. I mean, when people are asking all of us, what do we do? How do we move? This is an example that you can look to. Uh, I often say that it's not our responsibility to go learn about and work on everything under the sun. We need to amplify what's going on in lots of different places. But folks need to pick a lane where their expertise and their talents and their passions intersect and actually continue to go work on it. So you've got the activists uh, in Austin being really intentional about following this thing through long term and not being distracted from the fight that had to be taken all the way um, through this process when it has to do with the police union contract. Uh, and so gather with folks who are as passionate as you are and make sure that you are following through in the long term. It is one thing to do um, sporadic, quick hit work. And sometimes that is effective at bringing attention and creating pressure, but the best way to actually pursue things is to make sure that you stick with it in the long run. So shout out to the Austin organizers, not just for this incredible victory, but for giving all of us an example of how to behave. We've talked a lot about how uh, federal issues and and like the and the presidency and and Russia and and all of these things cannot be the only things that that activate us, right? We there are so many fights and there are so many opportunities for for progress that exist on the ground in local municipalities and local communities and states, and and especially over the course of the next three remaining years, hopefully not the next remaining seven, uh, these are where the fights are going to happen, right? They're going to happen on a state-by-state basis. They're going to happen in communities. And if you look at what leads to federal change, if you look at what leads to sort of uh, national sweeping reforms, it is that there are a range of wins on local levels and in state levels before that happens, right? So we can look at um, marriage equality as an example, right? That like state after state after state begin to grant more and more people the opportunity to marry the person they love. And ultimately there was a wave that created a wave of cultural change and social change that led to the Supreme Court uh, deciding what it did, right? And so so it is important for us to remember that these fights on the ground um, are as important and ultimately lead to the the change in the work that happens on a national on a national level. So we know that racial disparities are one of the defining features of the U.S. criminal justice system. Uh, for example, according to the Stanford Center on Poverty and Inequality, we know that Black people in this country are imprisoned at more than five times the rate of white people. Uh, one in ten Black children, for example, has a parent behind bars, as compared to about one in sixty white children. Uh, and so we are well aware of these these racial disparities. They they shape our discourse around this issue. Uh, but there's some new data that's been compiled by the Marshall Report that shows that between 2000 and 2015, which is the last year we have uh, data for, the imprisonment rate of black men dropped by more than 24 uh, percent. And at the same time, the white male rate increased slightly. And among women, the trend is even more dramatic. Between 2000 and 2015, the black female imprisonment rate dropped nearly 50 percent. Uh, and this is really important because I think that 
oftentimes in the narrative around incarceration, we um, there we can create uh, this idea that there have been no improvements or that there has been no decline in the racial disparities. But uh, but part of what we have to be able to do is is discuss the fact that like over the last. 15 years, there has been improvement and that the racial disparities that existed in 2000 are not as vast as they uh, exist now. And to say that even though there have been improvements, there is still an egregiously huge gap with regard to racial disparities, right? So we have to be able to, as I always say on this podcast, hold two truths at once, right? That progress has been made and that we are moving in the right direction, but also that, uh, that more work has to be done and right that black imprisonment is still dramatically and that imprisonment generally is is dramatically and disproportionately impacting the black community and so one of the things also is that it can be difficult for people to understand why these things are happening like and what to attribute them to and there's a lot of different theories there's not necessarily any specific causal empirical evidence that people can point to necessarily uh but quickly the marshall project offers a few, couple different theories so one uh, is that crime and arrest and incarceration over that time period are decreasing overall. And since black people are disproportionately represented in prison, they are inevitably going to be affected by overall declines. Uh, I think secondly, the war on drugs has shifted a focus uh, in the last 15 years from crack and marijuana more to meth and opioids. And so we see more white people getting locked up for drug abuse than we've seen previously. And then the use of crack um, is still a, a huge issue, but is not as prevalent as it once was and not being punished in the same way that it once was at the onset of um, Reagan's and Nixon's war on drugs. Uh, white people have faced declining socioeconomic prospects, I think with globalization and uh, a lot of things happening in different parts of the country to to white people that are uh, increasing the income gap and, and uh, reducing employment in a lot of areas. White people are going to prison for more property offenses like robbery, burglary, theft, and things that are often associated with uh, poverty. And lastly, uh, they posit that criminal justice reform has been happening largely in cities where black people live, uh, but not necessarily in rural areas that are disproportionately white. And so I think these are all really interesting theories. I would also add to this that uh, all of these things are happening while people on the ground have been doing this work and doing anti-incarceration work in communities. Um, and I think that that role can't be undermined, but, but all of this is, this is good news, right? It is good news that the, the racial disparities are going down, but there's still a morally urgent issue that we need to address because the disparities exist and they are far too vast. You bring up so many critical points, Clint. Um, and this was a really thoughtful piece, uh, not just in showing the shifts in rates, but also providing some potential explanations why. It made me think of two things in particular, though. One, um, that you're absolutely right. We cannot underestimate the effect of some of the community organizations that we have highlighted in previous podcasts. Some of the folks who work on ensuring reentry is lower. Um, some of the folks who work on underlying issues to the carceral state, everything from employment and equitable housing to better education. Those things also have an effect too. And I want to make sure we highlight that and double click on it. Um, the other thing though, is that the potential reasons for the closing of these gaps actually remind me of why 
the closing of gaps are a dangerous aspiration or framing often, um, because if the aspiration is just to ensure that there is less of a gap between people of color being incarcerated and white people being incarcerated, there are lots of ways to reach that end. If the goal is to actually um, create absolute excellence and equity, which means locking up fewer people, period, if if locking up people at all and actually being imaginative and how we can have a, a restorative and just society besides just locking people up and throwing away the key, then that will lead to different actions and responses. You know, we talk about this often in the context of education. For a long time, the phrase was closing the achievement gap, closing the achievement gap. And the achievement gap was problematic because it was euronormative and it basically told black and brown students that they needed to go and be as good as their wealthy white counterparts. Um, And that is not the aspiration that we should, that is not the message we should have been delivering to young people of color. But it also meant that it it led people to do some really strange things, right? And actually stop when they got their kids um, testing as well as wealthy suburban kids and in wealthy school districts, right? And that is actually not the goal. And so I think that um, this really begs the question for me about how we are framing what the target is. Is it the closing of gaps or is it absolute excellence? and equity. If it is absolute excellence and equity, then we clearly still have a lot of work to do. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think, you know, what's interesting about this data is that it shows progress on both lines, right? Towards both goals. So not only is the gap closing, but the overall rates of incarceration have been going down. Uh, and, you know, that was achieved through, you know, dramatic reductions uh, in black incarceration in particular. So, you know, White incarceration has been fairly static, um, while Black incarceration has been declining, and and particularly for Black women, where you see the rate uh, cut in half uh, over the past fifteen years, which is which is really incredible. Uh, one of the things that that was fascinating in reading this article from the Marshall Project was that they cited uh, as a potential explanation criminal justice reform in cities. Uh, and how so much of the reform that we've seen has happened in major cities where that have larger black populations, whereas it hasn't happened as much uh, in more rural places uh, that have wider populations. And, and you know, what that says to me, number one, is that policy uh, appears to be working, right? So there's a lot of conversation about, you know, does policy actually work? Can Is policy uh, sort of a, a solution or, you know, just uh, reforming a broken system and, and not actually going to lead to results? Uh, and what's clear here is that policy uh, is working uh, in many places that have implemented uh, these reforms. You can look at, you know, the incarceration rate in New York City, for example, um, and in many other places uh, as evidence. It also points to me the the need to uh, think more broadly than just big cities uh, and think about what does this look like when we have so many different jurisdictions, you know, thousands of different counties, 50 states, each one with its own, you know, system of uh, criminal justice, and how do we actually ensure that there is equity across the board, uh, especially when the federal government really appears to be uh, having no interest in addressing this issue? If anything, they're repealing some of the policies that uh, brought us to this point and actually made some of this progress. So the closing the gap is not the goal. So when we think about closing the achievement gap in school systems, that closing the gap, as Brittany noted, alone isn't actually the presence of justice or equity or every kid learning. It does... And what the achievement gap in education did, though, is that it helped people think about the problem differently and help people see like kids could actually kids can perform at 
consistent levels across the board. And when we looked at the achievement gap in education, it helped people look at resource allocation and, and realize that we just weren't investing in some kids in the way that we needed to and that we weren't supporting kids in the way that we needed to and that the gap was persistent and present because the needs of some kids were just different because of either institutional trauma or because of a legacy or because of learning disabilities or whatever. But there was something different about how we needed to respond to it. And until we had the data that showed the gap, we weren't able to accurately or adequately respond. So the gap as a mechanism, as a framework to think about the problem differently is actually really powerful. The gap as a goal is not so powerful. The other thing about this is... Uh, is that it is, it's promising to know that it's changing, the data's changing. It's a reminder to me that we can actually overcome these things. And while we don't know the root cause of how we got to where we are, and, and Sam uh, and Clint helped us think through options or possibilities, it is a reminder that like it doesn't have to be this way. So my news about Food Samson, Illinois. So Illinois has just uh, changed computer programs with regard to the food stamp uh, administration and uh, there are tens of thousands of people who no longer have access to food stamps. So in a given year, uh, the article notes that they normally, uh, normally about 10,000 people become ineligible. But since they've changed the computer program, about 40,000 people have become ineligible a month. And it's a reminder that when we build technology, when we build tools uh, that are seemingly supposed to make things easy, sometimes they have an impact that is not the intended impact and that it actually has dire consequences for people that there are people who like don't have food stamps now, but need them. And it's not no fault of their own. They didn't do anything wrong. It's caseworkers not knowing how to use new software, but it's on the backs of the most marginalized people. So I want to just bring this here because this is not the only issue that's happening with food stamps around the country. And I'm fascinated with food stamps, but uh, we got to figure out how to make sure that when we build new tools that are supposed to make things better. And Brittany on a past pod talked about how efficiency is often something that works against uh, people of color. You build it quick to try and save resources and money and don't realize that it actually does real damage in other ways. So there is a lot going on around food stamps. I'm really glad that you brought this up. Um, you know, the governor of Maine, uh, Paula Page, actually wants to ban the use of food stamps for buying junk food, as he says. And Governor Scott Walker from Wisconsin is moving forward with plans to make Wisconsin the first state to drug test all able-bodied adults applying for food stamps. Uh, and I am troubled by this, as we all should be, because it continues to criminalize poverty. Um, all of this uh, has to be put in the proper context of people who are doing their level best to provide for their families and not people who are somehow inherently criminal or bad or wrong. Um, so often these conversations come laden with judgments. Uh, and that leads to really poor policy decisions. Uh, being poor in this country means that you are far more subject to a paternalistic government than those who are not living in poverty. But, you know, Governor LePage, like if you don't want low income people eating junk food, then end food deserts and stop charging people $18 for an artichoke. Like If, if you don't uh, want people taking drugs, Scott Walker, then you should actually ensure that there is strong education and employment to stop drugs from being sold in many neighborhoods across the country, rural and urban to begin with. Poor people are not inherently criminal. Low income people do not need you to tell them what to do and how 
how to spend their money. Um, and it is an absolute abdication and perversion of the government's responsibility to shrink their support and then dictate how to use fewer resources. So I'm really frustrated by this continued turn. It is not at all a new trend, the way that we have discussed and penalized uh, uh, low-income people. Um, but I'm, I'm hopeful that as we continue to pay more attention to this thing, that we'll be able to stop some of these things in their tracks. Yeah, and just for context, these are two governors who have been uh, at the forefront of of attacking poor folks and, and people of color. So, like, LePage is the same guy who said that, quote, the enemy right now uh, are people of color of his or people of Hispanic origin. And he was talking about that in in reference to combating drugs. Like he said that very explicitly last year. And Scott Walker is the architect of of the most insidious and uh, and horrific set of of voter restriction laws that may exist in the entire country. Right that that we've talked about and that uh, we've had Ari Berman on this podcast talking about that that directly contributed to the results of the 2016 election and even before that. Um, so that's that's important context for for both of these men, um, and and I think Brittany laid it out perfectly. I think the part of what folks like this try to do is try to create uh, to dictate the morality um, or their conception of morality, and try to dictate what uh, people should be able to do or what or or say that people's access to basic government services should be contingent on their idea of what is right and wrong. And, and it is reflective of like the larger way that we pathologize poverty is that we suggest that you are only worthy of, of access to the most, again, this is not lavish stuff. This is the most basic resources. This is housing. This is uh, food. This is, these are, these are things that are necessary for one to like, subsist in the world. It's important for us to keep that in mind uh, as we think about the the policy that they're implementing and the way that they are discussing um, and the way that their rhetoric around poor, poor individuals and the, the rhetoric around poverty fundamentally misunderstands how poverty comes to exist and what the goal, government's role in alleviating and mitigating the effects of poverty should be. And I think with regard to Illinois and, and this system, uh, it is a illustration of the role that the actual build of the system, the delivery system, the website, uh, the, you know, case management system, you know, these systems are like actual things that need to be built and need to work well in order for people, even if the government, you know, agrees to provide a particular benefit uh, and is not, you know, out there and and acting in in a really nefarious way like Scott Walker or Paula Page. Um, but even when the government does sort of want to provide this, often the systems that they uh, build to deliver those services and those benefits are antiquated and broken and have real impacts on people's ability to get basic uh, resources that they need to survive. And so we have to be thinking about, you know, why is it that you know, if I order something on Amazon, like that definitely will arrive like overnight uh, because I can afford to to buy it. But if I need food 
and I don't have money to buy it, the government it has this system that just makes it impossible for me to actually get this basic resource. Uh, and I think that that, it, that needs to be flipped. We have to figure out how to apply the same level of rigor, the same uh, technology and uh, resources to fund these systems of providing care to low-income folks, folks who need it most, uh, that everybody else, particularly uh, you know, wealthy folks, receive on a daily basis because they can afford it. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Chelsea, thank you so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for asking me. Now, I heard that you recently evacuated your house. Is that correct? Oh, yeah, we did for the fires. And when I say we, I don't know why I'm saying we. I'm talking about me and my dog, I guess. (laughs) Me and my dog and my cleaning ladies. (laughs) What's your dog's name? Chunk. Chunk. I yes, love it. Like chunky peanut butter, <laughs> but with just a chunk. Now, Chelsea, how'd you first get into comedy? 
Well, what did I do? Oh, I remember. I had a, I had I got a DUI when I was 21. Um promptly a week after I turned 21 and they made you go to these classes. You know, when you get a DUI, you go to classes um to try and dissuade you from ever doing it again. Instead, they, these classes end up t- teaching you how to avoid ever getting a DUI again. They tell you like, oh, if you ever get pulled over, don't ever admit to having one drink. Um, you know, you just can't, as soon as you say that, the police officers can give you a field sobriety test. And anyway, this class I had to take for like 18 weeks. Um, they make you, you know, pay for your, what you did, which is obviously totally acceptable because I've, I've never been caught drinking and driving again. I don't think I've ever drank and drove again. So, um, but you, during this class, you have to get up and kind of tell your story about your DUI. And I was really just dreading it. I just didn't know what to say. I hated public speaking. The thought of it just made me, you know, have to go to the bathroom. It was just awful. And then on the very last, I just kind of avoided being called on for the 18 weeks that I was in the class. That may not, that might be an exaggeration. It may have been less than 18 weeks. It felt like 18 weeks. <laughs> but um, it was definitely went on way too long. And, um, I, on the very, very last class, my teacher was like, okay, it's your turn. And I just was so scared to get up and speak in front of these 50 people who had all told their stories. And so it was kind of intimate, but it wasn't, you know, it was just, I, you had to stand up on, in a, on a, in front of a dais or behind a dais and speak and, and uh, I told the story of my DUI, which was really funny. I mean, I've since wrote about it in books because it was really funny. I was I accused the cop of being racist. We were both white. I mean, I was drove past my house. My girlfriend was who was in the car was even more shit faced than I was, and she was making a huge scene. I ended up spending like forty eight hours in Sybil Brand Women's Prison in downtown LA because they had I had my sister's fake ID on me. I mean, there was just a whole kind of um, there was a lot to go with the story. So, and, um, so they had to put me into the system at Sybil Brand, which meant I had to be, you know, put in as like as somebody who was going to stay there for, for a long period of time before I could get taken out of the system. And, um, so it was a funny story, but I had never really told it out loud, I guess, maybe just some friends or something, but I told it and, you know, the class was just dying and laughing and everyone, and I would not get off the stage. Like, I was like, this is great. I had <laughs> never had an audience like this. I had never told a personal story. I mean, I had told them to my girlfriends for years and years and years and just thought I, you know, was good at telling stories to friends. And, but these were strangers. So, uh, and I remember the guy who ran the DUI class, this like little kind of diminutive man came over and he's like, at one point he's like, okay, if that's enough, get off the stage. This isn't supposed to be like this much fun. You're supposed to actually, you know, have to get up and admit to everybody, you know, what you did, why you did it and how you've, how you've dealt with it since then. But I remember having that experience. And when I got off, like a couple of people in the class were like, you need to do stand-up comedy. And I'm like, whoa, that is a great idea. Except (laughs) for the fact that I have to do this again a bunch of times. Um, so I kind of just took, I, at that point, I was like, well, I don't know what else to do. And stand-up comedy seems like a pretty good deal because then you're on the stage and with a microphone and nobody can interrupt you and you can just talk about whatever you want. You're not reading someone else's material. So I guess that's that's how I started to, that's how I started to wrap my mind around the idea of doing stand-up. People had suggested that to me before, but I'd never taken it, you know, seriously. And then after that class, I was like, you know what, I'm going to take this terrible experience and turn it into something positive. Although who knows what I was actually thinking. That's, that's what I ended up doing, but I doubt I was that actually circumspect about it. And Chelsea, what is the balance between sort of joking, making just joke jokes, and then talking about sensitive issues. I think about 
the comedy space has changed so much over the last couple of years about what's acceptable to say and not. How do you how do you balance uh, the role of, of comedy in light of uh, sort of serious topics? I think, you know, I think, I mean, as a comedian, I think you have an advantage of being able to give people information that can be serious and that can be divisive in a humorous and a more palatable way. And so I think that device is a is a real strength. It works in book. In my books, I use that. You know, I talk about really serious subject matters and I make it, you know, in in my opinion, I, I make light of it. And, I, and I've done that for a long time with my TV shows and everything. I, and I think it becomes more digestible that way. I think a lot of people don't want to be fed a you know, a bunch of information in a straight kind of way. It keeps your attention going. And I think it's a huge advantage. So if you can talk about things and issues that are important and that you, you know, in a funny way, I think you can reach a bigger audience or a smaller one, depending. <laughs> and it, and you recently made a decision to spend seemingly less time on comedy and more time on activism. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like why, what led you to that decision? Well, I mean, just as I've, you know, kind of grown up in the last 10 years, I've um, just started to have things, you know, use things, different things start to matter to you more. And um, especially with, you know, this election and what happened in the last few years and, um, you know, Obama for me was hugely inspiring and. I've always been interested in politics. I just didn't think I knew enough about it. And so I just kind of really dove in, especially with this my last show um, on Netflix with Chelsea. I just really dove in and I treated it as a college education, as a civics class. You know, I had people on who would teach me about politics, about how government works, how a bill is passed, who proposes a bill, how an amendment is passed. You know, and I asked the questions that I'm, and not just with regard to politics, with regard to science, with regard to sports, with regard to anything that I didn't know enough about, which is everything. So, um, you know, I came, I came at it that this show like that. And I feel like I, I really did get into college education at Netflix. I've learned more in the last two years than I've learned in my entire life. And I'm really, really, uh, I want to use that for something, you know, I have enough money. I have uh, everything I need. I don't, obviously I'm going to continue to work because I like to be able to support the people that can't support themselves. And I like to be able to put my money towards amazing causes and help people who feel hopeless. So I will continue to make money, but for many different, for a much different reason than I did when I started out. Um, and activism for me is just the most obvious thing to do right now. I'm, I, I was just so upset. I'm so upset by the way that the world is, you know, the United States is and the world is is going right now. It's just it feels like a really dark time. And I don't want to be somebody who's considered to be an elitist because I make a certain amount of money. I'm that doesn't preclude me from having opinions and being a member of society. You know, I pay my taxes. I <clears throat> I I spend a fair amount of my time in the past two years trying to learn more about experiences that I've never had for people from every kind of walk of life that's marginalized. You know, I've realized how beneficial um, my race has been to me and what I've been able to accomplish because of it and how kind of what an easy ride I've had, regardless of whether I've worked hard or not. I've never had a real struggle, you know, so um, those kinds of things have really um, been important for me to discover in the last few years and really think about and not just take the easy way out, which is making a certain amount of money a year doing a show that 
is fun. I want to do something else. I want to get on the ground and I want to, you know, go talk to people who have different opinions than I do. And I want my mind to change. I want my opinion changed. I want to come together with people, know that there are people that care about them. And activism to me is, um, is something I feel very passionately about. You know, I want, I want to make a difference in people's lives. You know, if I can go out and buy three different families health insurance who couldn't, uh, couldn't otherwise afford it, then that's something that I want to do. If I can get somebody car insurance that can't afford it, that's something I want to do. I want to touch people. And, um, and I just feel like I'm going to be better suited to do that by, by not being beholden to doing a talk show every week. Then you talk about the privilege of whiteness. What, what have you seen be effective to help white people process their own privilege? Is there any way that you've been able to do it in a way that you thought resonated with people? Well, I'm actually doing a documentary for Netflix about white privilege, about my experience with white privilege, and then, you know, about the people that don't um, benefit from white privilege. And some of the people that don't benefit from white privilege are are white people. Um, you know, there are obviously there, white privilege runs a huge gamut. You know, there's white privilege with somebody like me who just, you know, I thought I worked, I thought I pulled myself up by my, uh, by my bootstraps for a long time. I thought, oh, I came from nothing. I came from New Jersey. My father was a used car dealer. My mom was a nurse. That's, that's not nothing. That's a huge advantage already. Like I, I thought, oh, I, I didn't have any money. I didn't have a trust fund. I didn't go to Yale. I didn't go to Harvard. I think a lot of people think about white privilege and, and you know, as a certain thing that you come from a family with generations with of money like the Rockefellers or something like that you know but white privilege runs the entire spectrum there's 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 many different nuances and shades of it and so for me to realize that you know my career and all of the things that I've had um are a result of being white and pretty most more than anything else. You know, you can argue somebody has talent or they don't, but to me, that's a non-issue. Talent doesn't really factor in. There are plenty of people who are famous who have no talent, and there are plenty of people who are talented that don't have fame. So to me, it's that's a mood issue. I think it's um, it's about... I think there are a lot of white people that don't think white privilege exists. And my goal with this documentary is to pr- to show what it, how many different shades of white privilege there are. I didn't know that you were doing a show on Netflix about white privilege. I will definitely check that out. Uh, I do know that you have a new foe in the political space, the Huckabee family. How is that working out for you? Oh, yeah. Fuck those guys. I, I, I apparently I do, but I, I, I mean, I've heard it from people that work with me or for me. <laughs> I'd like prefer to say with me, um, but uh, I don't care about that. I mean, she's terrible. I mean, I honestly, I, uh, I feel as a feminist, a woman who stands up and lies to the American public day in and day out and accuses more than 15 women who are accusing our president of sexual impropriety is saying that they're liars. That is not a feminist. That's not a woman that anybody should be respectful of. Um, you have to listen to women. And um, if you, even if you took the women issue out of it, her denying the, uh, the truth of anything that these women are saying when our own president admitted that he grabs women and assaults them, knowing that you're lying to the American public every single day going out there and lying for a man who has shown disgraceful behavior um, since the moment he's been elected, racial behavior, he's st- started <laughs> arguably a war in the Middle East. He will probably try to start one with North Korea. He said terrible things to people. He's 
he's done terrible things to our, our climate. He's unrolled everything that Barack Obama did to protect this country and to safeguard this country. Um, I don't think it's a matter of being a Republican or a Democrat or an independent at this point. I think it's a matter of being um, a human being and to have no shame and know that you're lying is is not acceptable to, at all. And I don't really give a shit about what kind of blowback I get. She should be worried about what's going to happen to her when this presidency's over. I wanted to talk to you about the Me Too conversation. In so many ways, it seems like it has changed the landscape in the entertainment industry uh, and in politics. And I say that as an outsider to the entertainment industry. So I would love to know your take on it. Do you think that this is going to have long lasting changes? Do you think this is just a moment? Like, what what do you make of it? No, I think there's some, you know, this is a tipping point in some regard. I don't know what the end result will be. I think there's going to be such an overcorrection that there will be blowback. You know, I think men are going to be so pissed that they had to, because so many men are, you know, you're throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There are different degrees of sexual harassment. And at this point, we can't have different degrees. It's just zero tolerance. So people that, are, you know, I love Al Frank and I think Al Franken's an amazing senator. I think he's done amazing work and he's been progressive on women's issues. Do I want him to step down? No, but I understand that it's necessary because we can't can't have any tolerance for um, sexual impropriety, especially at this level. You know, the irony is that we have a man that's running our country, in quotes, I say that, that is is obviously guilty of sexual impropriety. I mean, you don't have that many women come forward. He's admitted to it. He's been married three times. He's cheated on all of his wives. Like, obviously, this man is not somebody who's morally correct or has any moral compass. Um, uh, do I think this is g- going to change the world? Yeah, I think this is a really loud dig. And I think there's something's going to change. And I think it's ironic that the the reaction to 54% of white women electing this man to be the president, I think this is their reaction to going, oh my God, what have we done? So I think there there is going to be a change. I can't predict what that will be, but we're in a situation right now where you have to take every single accuser at face value and they need to be heard and they need to be listened to. And then We have to figure out if what they're saying, you know, if there's any, any reason to disbelieve them. That comes after believing them. You have to believe these women. We're not in a moment where we can say we can disregard that, you know, and I think a lot of people who, you know, I think you're not going to be able to have conversations that are comfortable anymore at work or you're not going to be able to ask somebody out on a date at work anymore. That's just not going to happen. But it's necessary. It's a necessary time. Too many women have been abused. And no, I have never had that experience. Although uh, my boundaries are so vague, I don't even know if I would know if somebody was treating me in that way. I've never been sexually assaulted. um, And if somebody said something inappropriate to me, I probably would just have said something inappropriate back. (laughs) But I can't think of a time where somebody took advantage of me. So I no, I can't pretend that I've, I've had that experience. And you've been so vocal about DACA. What what led you to to be such a big advocate for the Dreamer community? Like how'd you how'd you start to learn these issues? Well, I think honestly, I think anybody in this in this administration, I mean in this time affected by this administration, every single person that's been marginalized or targeted has to be spoken up for. Um if you have a platform and you you should be using it in a positive way and in and to evoke uh, I want to protect anybody who's marginalized. It's not just dreamers. It's, you know, it's the trans community. It's the LGBT community. It's the black community. It's the Muslim community. It's refugees. 
I want to be a person that lets them know that there are people that are looking out for them, that people that are going to fight for them. Um, not everybody is able to use their voice in that way. People are scared. And so if you can't fight for these people, then what, I mean, I don't want to just go get my fucking nails done every day. I don't want to like sit there and think about myself and my own world. I think the meaning of having a, having a meaningful life and having a meaningful existence is to actually touch people and let people know that you're going to go to bat for them. And the dreamers, I mean, you know, to be a, just a, a byproduct of, of a, of this racist president trying to unroll everything or roll back everything that the black president did before him just for the sake of it to appease his, you know, his base is sickening. And for the people that don't want to get involved in politics or don't want to like, you know, uh, don't want to piss off some of their fans or they don't want to lose, you know, their base, you know, so to speak, I think is um, craven. And what do you think about Colin Kaepernick, both his his decision not to stand, the way the NFL has treated him? Uh, what's your message to Colin? And what do you think about uh, the way that he's used his platform to to push the conversation and the work. I completely support Colin Kaepernick. I, I mean, I, I, why? Of course, you, he, I mean, he, of, of course, I support him. I I support anybody who takes a peaceful approach to uh, approach to protesting. That's what this country's supposed to be about. Who cares if it's mixed with NFL and and it doesn't matter. You're allowed to do that's his job. That's his profession. He's allowed to use his platform the way he wants to use it. That's what that's what our whole country is supposed to be about. And that's what people have fought for for years and years and years for us. You know, the most powerful thing after him, after everyone taking the knee in the beginning of this football season was was that army uh, veterans tweet saying, yeah, that's exactly why I fought for this country so that people like that could take a knee. You know, how can you attack somebody for peacefully protesting? I don't care what the venue is. There's nothing wrong with that. And Chelsea, what do you say to the people who are losing hope, who feel like the system is bigger than them? They fought, they protested, they marched, they called, and nothing has changed. What do you say to those people? I think that, you know, I feel like that many days. Believe me, I'm just disgusted. As I'm just as disgusted as many other people are. Um, but, you know, you have to just, if you have to take a break, you have to take a break, but you got to get back up the next day and you have to fight because this is a really sensitive time. And if you don't use your voice and you and you and you're not tireless in your tweeting, in your signing petitions, in your marching, in your protesting, in your calling your Congress people, you then you are part of the problem. You have to become, you know, the resistance. You have to say, no, this is not acceptable. No, I'm not going to turn away. I'm not going to go, you know, tune out for two weeks and not pay attention because I can't take it anymore. I don't have anything, any skin in this game. I can leave this country. I don't have kids. I don't have a husband. I don't, I don't need to be here, but I'm not going to disappoint the people that do need people to stand up for them. I'm just not going to do that. It's my responsibility as an American and as a human being, wherever I was from, I would hope that it would behave this way. Yeah. Are there times where I want to get the fuck out of here? Yeah. I went to London for a week and drank myself silly because it was so nice not to hear about Trump for one week and wake up and read British shitty news. But, (laughs) 
you got to, you know, we've got to stay in this together. We can't just take off. You know, we, we just can't. Um, believe me, that's the easy way out. But I'm not about doing the easy thing. I think it's about, you know, what kind of person do you want to be? Do you want to be, do you want to look back at this time and think that you didn't do anything and you let like women's rights be rolled back and people deported from this country who have no recollection of the own country that they came from and saying no to refugees who are refugees don't want to come here. They want to stay in their own country. Unfortunately, they can't. You know, I mean, this whole, you know, it's not just having a bad president. It's having, it's having a liar lie repeatedly day in and day out to hundreds of millions of people. We're losing, we've lost any global respect. People don't want anything to do with the United States. They've completely backed away from us. Um, and, you know, we have people resigning from his cabinet and administration on the daily because people don't know what to do. And those people, I would beg to stand up and say, this is untenable. We can't have this man running the country. This is not what this country is supposed to be about. And it's and also it's just not um it's not compassionate and it's not empathetic and it's not about being a bleeding heart liberal. It's about being a human being. It's about wanting everyone to succeed, not blowing out somebody else's candle so that yours can be brighter. You know, the idea that that Mexicans come over here and get welfare is false. That's not. Do you know how hard it is to get on welfare? It's hard. It's not fucking easy. No Mexicans are coming over here to get on welfare. They're working for five dollars an hour because it's so bad in their own country. They have nothing else to do. Sorry, I hope I was hope I'm hoping you're not you didn't think this is going to be a funny interview. (laughs) So angry. People Uh, have the right to be angry. You know, that's what I'm reminded of every single day. Is there a piece of advice that you've received that stuck with you over the course of your career? Yeah, I mean, I don't take advice too seriously. I I think like whatever works for you, you know, I mean, I read in somebody, I mean, you know, I've heard a lot of time it only takes one person to say yes. It doesn't matter how many people say no. And that's very true. You know, you have to be okay to be rejected if you're in this kind of career or, you know, in any career, I guess you have to be, you have to be okay. You have to have a thick skin. It's like, you know, you can't worry about what everybody thinks about you and you can't worry about the people that don't get you. You really have to focus on the person that does. All you need is one person to go, you know what? You've got what I'm looking for. You've got talent or you, you're good at this and I can give you a job doing this. And, and then you have to, you know, it's your responsibility as, as an adult at some point to exploit what you're good at and find out the things you're not good at and maybe try and get better at those or try and open your brain a little bit more, you know, try and travel, try and figure out, you know, I just read this book uh, about about a, a, a man who was born as a woman and transitioned. And I, I'm producing a lot of TV shows and I option a lot of books when I find them interesting. And it was a great book for me to read because I don't know anything about that. I don't know anything about the trans community. I don't get it. It does. It, it makes me a little uncomfortable because I, I, I'm not well versed in it. And so I wanted to have a better understanding of it. You know, and I read this book in two days and I was like blown away. I was like, it's called It Takes Balls. And it's about a guy who had a very rarefied experience because his family was supportive, his Armenian family. He lived in Boston and, you know, he had the luck of having a family that was financially capable of paying for all those surgeries, which were like, you know, which were more than 22, I believe. And he had a family that was supporting his transition. So those are two things that many people don't have. But for me, it was a great read in terms of, oh, I get it, what it feels like to be born born in the wrong body. Now I understand what people are talking about when they feel like they have to change sex. It's 
it's not what I thought. You know, you think, oh God, is it really necessary? You don't know what it is and because you, I don't have that. I don't have that experience. So for me, you know, when I, when I read books, when I'm doing active, you know, when I'm trying to, um, you know, exercise my activism when I'm trying to show up to things, I'm trying to show up to things I know nothing about. I'm trying to learn more about the experiences that I don't have. Um, you know, when I, Black Lives Matter, you know, like when, when people don't understand or when white people talk about rolling back affirmative action, they don't have an understanding of what it means to be in the body of a black man. And no matter what you do and no matter how much research you, you can, you grab, as a white person, we'll never know what it's like to be a black person. So it's of the most import to learn as much as you possibly can about the things you know nothing about. And um, I think a lot of people are, A, not interested and, you know, B, are more self-absorbed and just want to think about the ways that they can be, you know, have better lives themselves. And I think the the more we can help other people have better lives, the higher quality our, our own lives become. Um, and I, I'm a big proponent of that. I think you always have to step outside your comfort zone in order to gain more knowledge. And so that's what I plan on doing this next year. I'm going to go around to a lot of universities. I have a lot of town hall talks. I'm going to do a lot of stuff with Politicon and talk to people who have different opinions than I do. And um, you know, and focus my activism. I'm going to shoot my documentary. I'm going to write a book and I'm just going to focus on doing the things that make me feel like I'm contributing. And where can people go to stay in touch with what you're doing to follow you to, to stay tuned? Oh, my social media. I'm on Instagram and Facebook and all of that. I mean, I list all the things that way. I don't know. Do people still have websites? Maybe I should get one of those put back up. But uh, no, I mean, I'm on Twitter. I'm very active. So, I mean, you're not going to get far without hearing something about me, whether you like me or not. I mean, I'll still be very public and, you know, I'll be on TV, just not in the same way. I just was beholden to a studio every week and had to be in that studio every week and was kind of um, I kind of felt like I had all my eggs in one basket. And when there are so many other things I want to do and produce, and so I just wanted to free up my time a little bit more, especially right now. I think it's a really important time. I've par- partnered with Emily's List also about getting more females elected. And we have, so for the people that are, you know, to go back to what you asked earlier, for the people that are really feeling like it is a hopeless situation, you know, you have to remember what happened in Virginia a few weeks ago or a few months ago, a couple months ago. You have to remember what happened in that election. We've had more first-time women be elected in the last uh, six months than we've seen in years. And that is a direct result of what happened during this election. Emily's List is a great organization that came was you know responsible for Barbara Boxer, Kamala Harris, um, and so many other fantastic women that they really got on board with. So I've partnered with them because I, I think more women being elected is a necessity. And I'm going to be going around the country campaigning for those women, for the women who's who are progressive and believe in female equality and uh, gender equality and want you know minimum wage to be raised. I want women that are pro-choice. Um, I feel like you know in many ways we're going backwards, but in many ways I think those things go hand in hand. So we may have this guy in office right now, but the result is that women are angrier than they've ever been, and that's the Me Too, and that's the women running for um, office. And so I'm just going to try and get people as involved as they can on a local level in all of their communities, and ex- just try to impress upon college kids how important it is to stay active um, in politics. 
votes and that your vote does matter and every vote does matter. Um, and I want women in office. You know, those two women were the ones that saved us from that health care bill. So along with John McCain, um, you know, unfortunately, it doesn't look like they're going to do the same with this horrifying tax reform bill. But uh, I think women and men in a balanced government is, is going to be a lot different than what we have right now. Well, thank you, Chelsea. I appreciate you making time for the pod and we consider you a friend of the pod and we'll see you again soon. Thank you. And thank you for everything you're doing, too. And I am a friend of the pod. I'm a friend of all of the pods. Don't go anywhere. More Pod Take the People's coming. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. You don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go. And Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. And now my conversation with Cornell Belcher, the first uh, African-American pollster for a major political party and one of Obama's uh, original pollsters when he decided to run. Cornell, thank you so much for joining us on Five Save the People. Thanks for having me, brother. I appreciate it. Now, most people probably don't know you specifically, but they know your work because you were one of the Obama pollsters way back in the day. And you were one of the guys behind the 50 state strategy when Howard Dean was at the DNC. You were the pollster. Uh, but you've been doing a lot of other polls since then. No, I, I, that, that, that is correct. I was the first um person of color to be the, the poster for either national party, which is not something that necessarily I would, I would wish upon anyone. Uh, <laughs> but we did, we did good work. Uh, and we had the most successful chairmanship in, in, in modern history. And we did roll that over into, um, the, uh, the Obama race. And it's interesting you sort of bring up the, the, uh, the Obama race. Cause I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of lines that quite frankly, I draw back uh, from today to to that Obama race and the conversation that we had in that Obama race and how it unfolded. And I do actually, this is going to be a, a, a shameless plug here. Uh, but yeah, my, my, my book that I wrote, uh, A Black Man in the White House, uh, is, a, is about some of these lines. But I think there are some lines that can be drawn back to the, tri- the sort of the tribalism and the polarization that we see uh, now in this country and even that we saw in Alabama where we just barely beat a child molester um, a couple of days ago, I think can be drawn back to to that uh, to, to Obama's rise and, and that run. And you know, one of the conversations that we had early on with then Senator Obama around a small table before he even announced was this conversation about building a movement, right? And especially for people of color, a, a movement's not something that's political. A movement is 
spiritual, it's cultural, it's 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 bigger than just something that's that that than that than politics, right? And this ideal that he wanted to build a movement, that was his language. These ideals about building a movement and 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 with knowing that we're going to have to expand the electorate, if there's any chance for Obama to to win a primary and certainly to win a general election, we're going to have to expand the electorate. We're going to have to make the the electorate look more like the changing face of America, right? We have to change the face of America. And in 2008, we did that, right? We we you know Barack Obama won back to back majorities. Was the first time a Democrat's done that in a long long time. But you know, 2008, we won basically with by, you know, we got the same percentage of the white vote that, that John Kerry got when losing, but we won. And we did that by expanding the electorate, right? And when you look at state, state after state, you know, it was because we changed the face of the electorate and we brought more people into the process. We weren't necessarily, you know, we didn't win white voters in 2008, just like John Kerry didn't win them before before then, but that was also sort of a wake-up call, right? All of a sudden in America, because of the changing demographics and changing face of the American electorate, uh, you can have, for the first time, uh, the choice of the overwhelming majority of white people uh, can, can lose, right? Uh, in, a, in, a, in a national election, you can lose the White House while the overwhelming majority of 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 white people vote one way and the and the and the country goes 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 another way, and I argue that it was a that it was one of the real first uh, challenges to white political dominance um, in this country, and 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 there was absolutely a backlash to that, and I think we're seeing the remnants of that backlash uh, in 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 the rise of the Tea Party. And calls for taking people, what people thinking they need to take back their country, and certainly in the hyper tribalization of our politics uh, today, where you can be someone who's a creep, who's banned from the malls, and trying to date teenagers, and still win a majority of white women in Alabama. What do you make of the fact that white people overwhelmingly supported? Roy Moore and and black people overwhelmingly supported Doug Jones and white women voted for uh, Roy Moore. Like, how do you? I mean, you know the numbers and the and the sort of mechanics of of that way better than the vast majority of the American public. Certainly better than me. What do we make of that? We make of it that you you do have a a built in sort of tribalization that's going on. And look, and we, we pretend that it's not, but we but we know that it is there, right? You know, uh, it. <laughs> Roy Moore, even before the child molestation stuff came up, right? Roy Moore was someone who who was who said some unbelievable offensive things about everything from women's rights to 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 Muslims uh, uh, and and African Americans, and, and you know, and someone who's pined about how, quite frankly, the best days of this country was when uh, people who look like you and I were enslaved, right? Uh, so you would think that would be enough to disqualify someone, right? But the truth of the matter all, all is that none of that really disqualified him um, to 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 a majority of, of of white voters in Alabama, and even after the child molestation stuff came out, still that didn't disqualify him to the majority of white voters in there. Because, like I've said um, on on Meet the Press this this past weekend, is that all he has to be is their tribal warrior, right? And that's where we are as a country. That's why I make the argument that a decade ago, or two decades ago, Donald Trump 
And this is what is shocking the most establishment Republicans. I make the argument Donald Trump could not have been, could not have won the, the nomination, right? This sort of, this, this sort of character could not have won the nomination for the, for the Republican party. However, all of a sudden, when you do have this this sense of angst about losing the country, right? And 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 brother, when 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 people say we want to take our country back, I take them seriously at that. That they feel as though they're losing their country, and and that that Donald Trump tapped into that, and all of a sudden, that is the base of the Republican Party now, right? Mitch McConnell and Ryan uh, aren't necessarily the 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 best people to speak to the base of the Republican Party. Now, all of a sudden, it is a character like Donald Trump who rebooted the Southern strategy uh, in his run up in his run to office. And much to the surprise of many Republicans was actually able to gain the nomination because that's where the base of the party is. And he spoke to that angst. And look, I'm not one to point fingers at people and say, okay, well, you're a bad person and you're, and, and, and you're racist and all this. But I, I do understand that there's a lot of people who are anxious about the changes that are happening in this country, and that's understandable, but we've got to have a different conversation about it because, because for better or worse, we are not going to get wider as a country, right? Uh, black and brown political power is here to stay, as evident in Virginia and, and quite frankly, in Alabama the other, the, the other, other evening, right? So we can't kick this can down the road anymore. We're going to have to have these tough conversations and we're going to have to inoculate some of this angst that's going on, or we're going to tear we're going to tear this country apart. Now, what is um what you you reference a southern strategy for those that don't know what that is? What is that? Oh, I'm sorry. Right. Uh, although your 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 podcasters are smart, uh, it, it is it is something that 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 you know the Republicans came up with Atwater, uh, seen as the father of that you know brilliant if not diabolical uh, political strategies, and certainly something that that the Nixon folks unfolded, where you basically <laughs> you pit you pit poor whites against against African Americans, right? Um, you drive a wedge, you drive racial animosity. Uh, in order to in order to win, to win votes, right? When and you know, I think du, du, du Bois talked about this, and I think Black Reconstruction, where he talked about, you know, after Reconstruction, or you know, poor whites in many ways were just as worse off as 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 the just the just freed slaves, right? Economically, they were they were almost in worse shape as as just freed slaves, but the but the plantation owners, the, the landowners, gave them Jim Crow to eat. And they ate on it until they were full, right? So it is, so it is, it is that historical, um, within that historical continuum of of driving racial animosity, uh, really sort of um, a, a boogeyman or 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 a straw man uh, for political gain. Now, what can we learn from Alabama? Are there any lessons that we can take from from this win and? And taken to the future. And why was it so close? Like that was, and maybe you can't, I mean, maybe it just was close because it was close. But since I have an expert here, I thought I'd ask. <laughs> well, a couple of things. One is, and I know we, I know we want to celebrate Alabama and we should celebrate Alabama, but uh, let's understand Alabama is not a bellwether. It is not a, uh, it is not, it's not Virginia, right? Um, Alabama is a solidly Republican solidly um red red state when you say it's not virginia what does that mean like is virginia is virginia a bellwether state uh, it, yes it, it means that virginia virginia looks virginia looks more like 
what um, the competitive America looks like right nationally. Right, uh, Virginia looks a lot like where if 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 Democrats win, uh, you know, in the, in the midterms, and certainly they win in the, on the in the, in the you know in the next presidential. It, it'll be because they went in places that look a lot more like Virginia than Alabama. You know, Alabama is a, a lot is an outlier in a lot of different ways. One, one, it's a lot more rural than the rest of America. It is a lot uh, more downscale, you know, economically, but also downscale educationally uh, than 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 the, than, the, than the rest than the rest of the country. Right. So you know, Alabama is a is is doesn't is an outlier in, in a lot of different in a lot of different ways, right? It is not. It does not look like the place where, uh, if we're going to have success in the in the in in the future elections, it does not look like that 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 demographic or that geographic, right? Uh, and it. it is also a state where you've had strident uh, racial polarization, you know, in a ways that are not even not even covert. Uh, it is a state where you're seeing, and like m- many other states, right, where, and this is, goes back to the continuum and the threat that I was talking about with the rise w- w- that many people felt when Obama was elected. Alabama is a state like Florida and like Georgia where you're seeing as the the black or brown population grows, the number of whites voting Republican also grows, right? Once upon a time, you you yeah. actually had... Uh, Democrats being competitive in some of these southern states, but it's not by accident that as these and and sort of demographic changes that are happening in our country, guess what? As you know, they're happening, uh, you know, first and foremost in in in, in parts of the, the 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 South and the and the Bible Belt, if if you will, where 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 you have a, a growing diverse you know population explosions, right? And, and but what you've seen over the years as as the proportion of the population grows browner, the the percentage of whites growing Republican also grows, right? So you're locking in this political tribalization, and that certainly is front and center in a state like uh, Alabama, where Democrats have struggled uh, just to get to, you know, just to get to 30 percent of the white vote, right? Now, think about that. I mean, the, uh, Doug Jones was, was was successful because basically he he over-indexed with African-Americans where you had African-Americans making up a larger proportion of the electorate in Alabama this time around than they did in a presidential election year, which is just unheard of, right? Repeat that. Like, what is the part that's unheard of? That you have a larger turnout of African-Americans. African-Americans make up a larger proportion of the electorate uh, in a special election than they do in presidential years. Now, presidential years are where you get a that does not normally happen at all, <laughs> right? It is something okay. that's the opposite. Usually happens, turn out, and in fact, drops dramatically, especially among minorities and young people in off years, and certainly for special elections. The the electorate and, and the the you know the black and brown electorate in Alabama was woke, right? And particularly, thank God for black women and and their magic, who really uh, helped pull us across, right? So, and these elections are are won in the margins, right? You're talking about one percent, two percent, so. You know that the electorate there was was four or five percent browner than it was even in a presidential election year. You you understand why he you know 
he can uh, Doug Jones could, could could pull ahead by a point, uh, even with the vast majority of, of white voters voting for him. And in that sort of way, you only have to get to roughly, you know, 27 to 30 percent of the white vote to have a chance to win. And that's what you had there. But let's be clear, you know, even with all these allegations that not me, but but Senate Republican leadership said were credible, right? That the Speaker of the House said were credible. Uh, you know, a majority of even white college-educated women in Alabama voted for their tribal warrior, right? I've made the argument, and I've got and 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 it's a and and I get in trouble when I say it because people want to get in heated debates about it. But I say, look at tell me in history, right? That we that that race trumps gender. Right. And 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 we have to do. And when you look at what happened with um, certain segments of the electorate, uh, particularly the arguably, you know, women voters here, I think a lot of conventional wisdom in in at least the Northeast Corridor would argue that, you know, these are our voters we should be able to make inroads with. Uh, we did make some inroads in in Alabama. But but you still had the vast majority of white women in Alabama voting for a guy that, not my words, but Mitch McConnell says, uh, had credible accusations uh, from teenagers. So what do we do? Like, what is the if you had, to, you know, broad stroke, help us figure out, like, how we get out of this nightmare that is the Trump presidency? Is it? And you acknowledge that something different has happened in Alabama, something that doesn't normally happen. Does that give you hope? Is there like a, or is this like a blip and we need to temper our expectations? Like, what do we, you know, there are a lot of activists and organizers who, who listen to the pod and are trying to make sense of what comes next. I, I do. I, I do. I think I, I have hope, but it's, it's got to be tempered. You always got to have hope. And when people don't have hope, you know, I say, you know, you, you know, get your ass in gear. Right. We've we got work to do. Uh, this is this is I'm, I'm hopeful for a couple of different reasons. One is that we got to do the work uh, and we have to engage in really uncomfortable conversations, which is something I've been doing around my book when I go out and talk about it is. Look, as I said, the country is not going to get wider, right? Unless there's a secret plan that that you and I don't know about, the country is not going to get wider. Yeah, deport everybody. To get That's and, it's and, not a secret. <laughs> he deport everybody and not right. favor people's health care so they die. That's not a secret. <laughs> right. So you know, and and millennials are key to this because you know, millennials are the most diverse generation of Americans in American in, in our history. Right. They are the generation where you will see. Uh, a transfer, a, a, an amazing, remarkable transfer, right? Where our country becomes uh, a plurality of and a majority minority um, in this in this generation, right? Which is something that that that's going to challenge us because because no other Western democracy has had this, where where the once minority group and a large part of that minority group that was enslaved becomes part of the, the majority group, right? And sort of a transfer of, of, of power, uh, certainly a political power, right? This is a tr- this is an extraordinary thing. But if we believe in democracy, uh, we have to have faith, right? But if, we, if, if this is all about power, then we're in trouble. But if this is about freedom and democracy, I think we have, we have a chance. One of the things that I, I think progressives have to do is this. When Donald Trump 
is standing in front of his audience like he like he did throughout the campaign and say, I'm going to give you back your country. Donald Trump is having a conversation about race. Right. You know, politics 101, he or she who defines the debate wins the debate. Right now, Donald Trump's having a conversation about about race. The progressives or the Democrats response has too often been, I'm going to raise the minimum wage. Right. I'm going to make college more affordable. Brother, that's not a conversation about race, right? We're seeding the, 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 the conversation completely to Donald, Donald Trump so he can, in fact, run with those fears to people who are anxious about it. I, you know, I think one progressive hat that we have to stop seeding the, 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 the ground to, to likes of Donald Trump to define the debate because we're not going to get wider as a, as a country. You know, you're not going to have your country back. Uh, but we must figure out a way to live together and share power or we, we all lose the future. And what uh, are there any myths that you want to bust around uh, around the way we talk about sort of communities? I, I think about I mean, you have a closer sense of what people are saying because you poll them. Is there like is is race top of mind for people or are we overblowing it? Is mass incarceration and criminal justice actually as important as the space that it takes in the public conversation? Or is it really the economy and jobs and schools? Well, I would argue that it for, for it doesn't it doesn't take much space at all in the conversation, really, at, at, at the national level. You know, what we're seeing is that, you know, criminal justice reform and, and issues of, of police uh, profiling brutality. Uh, they are not secondary issue considerations, especially for 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 Black millennials, right? They are, you know, top tier issue considerations, right? Arguably, the number one issue considerations, right? And when you look at a place like Virginia, where where not only African Americans but Hispanics as well uh, feel as though their communities are under are under threat now more than ever, um, you know, these issues of of, of division and and racism and discrimination, they're not secondary issue considerations for, for people of color who have to live in this, right? And, and, and progressives have to do a better job of connecting to this issue, these issue concerns. When I, when I look and I see what happens in places like Virginia, Alabama, I know that's not simply because of the Democratic candidate there. It's also because you have a lot of third-party organizations like Black Pack and others that are actually in those communities Door to door, doing communications, doing groundwork, sort of expressing the importance of their issue considerations, uh, you know, and connecting that to voting, right? Connecting the dots between uh, voting and fighting uh, racial profiling, right? Connecting the dots to voting and and having a safer and having a safer community. And I and I, it, it, but here and here's the, the fundamental problem I still see in. In our politics, right? When you look at how Doug Jones um, won that election, yes, he, he did better among white voters. Certainly, that was a big deal, right? But but when you look at what the incredible, remarkable phenomenon that happened there in that in the African American community, particularly among African American women, um, you know, that isn't you are not seeing the parties. The party to put resources and funding uh, to drive and communicate to, to to minority voters in a way that they're that they're they're doing with with other communities, right? Of all the money that was spent in 
and these and these two races, you know, I, I assure you, not a third of it was was spent uh, uh, with communities with communities of color. And understand that for Democrats to win, a state like Florida, right? If you look at 2012, Obama's winning majority coalition and 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 his winning uh, uh, coalition in Florida, you know, about half of that were were people of color. Right, and you certainly don't see the party spending about half of their resources, uh, you know, uh, aimed and targeted at, at, at communities at communities of color, and particularly as the, you know the face of our electorate changes more and more, we're going to have to commit more of our, our our time, resources, and efforts to in fact engaging communities of color. And what that means, by the way, that means you also have to empower more people who of color uh, in order to do this, right? So there's not only a problem, you know, on the right, I would argue there's also a problem in the progressive community because because we need uh, and we should be about empowering more people of color uh, to be more competitive in a, in a, in a more diverse and changing uh, marketplace. And where can people go to stay up with what you're doing? You know, I, I, my, my office, they make me tweet. They, 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 I'm on Twitter a lot. So, um, I'm an old man. I, you know, but I, 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 I <laughs> Cornell at Cornell Belcher, uh, on Twitter. And I've just actually recently got on Instagram and I don't know what the hell I'm doing on Instagram, but I'm recently on Instagram. I saw it Cornell underscore, uh, Belcher. So, um, so follow me and, and, and I'll, I'll I drop knowledge throughout the day and sometimes some interesting pictures. Do you think that we can flip the House in, or, or Congress in 2018? You know, uh, two months ago, I, I did not, right? And I, as someone who works at, at the DCCC, which is the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, uh, once upon a time, it is, I understand how hard it is, right? Um, you know, the gerrymandering is, 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 has taken a toll, right? The number of competitive House seats today is not nearly what it was, you know, eight years ago or, or a decade ago. So it's, got, it's gotten harder to actually do it. Democrats need to, to outperform, I believe, our performance in 2006 when we took back the House. That's a tough, that's a tough job in some really tough districts. I didn't believe it was possible until I've seen the last, seen what's happening in these special elections where you do have, you know, uh, progressives and, and particularly younger people and people of color uh, waking up and 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 bum rushing the, the the polls, right? Um, and you do, and there is a sense that that the energy right now is building on the on the left in a way that 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 makes it possible to win back the house, but it's so so tough because incumbency, but also because of the gerrymandering. Now, the the positive is just like in two thousand six. Uh, we were helped by a lot of Republican retirements, and so open seats are 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 more competitive than trying to take out an incumbent. It's easier to win an open seat than it is to take out an incumbent, and you do have a lot of Republican um, retirements going this time around because a lot of them, quite frankly, don't want to work with Trump. But a lot of Republican retirements this time around, just like we saw in two thousand, going into two thousand and six, when I was working for the for the DNC, and you also saw the Republican brand. Taking a hit, uh, you remember in 2006, you, all, you also had a very unpopular president in, in Bush, whose, whose uh, approval numbers were also in the 30s, uh, higher 30s though, 30s, 40s, and a Congress with, with approval numbers in the 20s, uh, a lot of retirements, and 
and decides fashion with, with the way things were going. I think you see the same kind of environment building right now, even more so with Donald Trump. But I think that the, the map is just harder today because of Jerry Madrid. Dope. Well, I appreciate you, uh, Cornell. We consider you a friend of the pod, and everybody follow Cornell, the smartest pollster you ever meet. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Thanks so much for listening to Positive the People. Can't wait to see you back here next week. Make sure you tell a friend. Make sure that you rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. See you next week. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today.